Sandy mentioned earlier, what we are doing today is, uh, is I, as I see it, something of a parenthesis. Okay? We're, we're taking a short break from Zechariah, but picking up New Testament themes, uh, that, picking up on what the New Testament says about some of these Old Testament themes that we're seeing in Zechariah already. And I want to start just by highlighting that uh, a truth that really we all know, that one of the key signs that a church is healthy is a community-wide commitment to loving one another. Would you not agree? Of course you would. The Bible is pretty clear as to what will serve that purpose well for us, uh, a dual commitment to our selflessness and to god centeredness in other words putting him first instead of ourselves and i think such is james's concern as he writes to the churches who will receive his letter for a little bit of context for you in chapter three james has already been setting out with some seriousness a, a stark warning that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's in James 3.16. So, in other words, he's saying a lack of love for one another does not result in, in you just walking along and just the church plateaus. It, he's saying there that actually you, by failing to love one another and by putting self first, you're going to take a negative dive. It's going to be a descent. And that's very like what we see uh, even in, in Zechariah chapter 1. Turn from your evil ways, your evil practices. James here is talking about evil practices. The glorious alternative then that James serves up for us that we're going to explore together is in 3.18 where he says what we have to pursue is a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. That sounds like those who love one another. That sounds like a church, uh, a description of a church that loves and indeed whose love will be attractive enough to have a harvest of righteousness in the nation. So James 4 that we're thinking about today, if you'd like to turn to that, if you haven't already done so, is essentially an elaboration of these points. James want to in, wants to invite believers like us, uh, a church like ours, to undergo something of a consultation. Uh, he wants us on the treatment bed, in other words, undergoing some diagnostic tests. And there are three things that I want to highlight for us today in verses 1 to 5. Number 1, James's diagnostic tests. Number 2, in verse 6, God's remedial grace in verses 7 to 10, uh, our necessary response. But let's, let's pray together and then we'll read James 4, 1 to 10 together. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken your word. And through the prophet Isaiah declared, this is the one I will esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Lord, our pride is a very real problem for us. We come before you asking you to remove it that we would tremble under your word, recognizing that we are not coming as an authority over it, but it as an authority over us. Speak boldly to us for the transformation of our lives, we pray that we might better love one another 
and better display your glory to the nations. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So James 4, starting from verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble, uh, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Amen. This is God's word. Well, in a former life, figuratively speaking, I used to work in an orthopedic trauma unit in Dundee, and we'd be receiving patients with bony injuries, be that anything from a fall or from road traffic accidents. And whenever patients came in, there was always the outward sign that something was wrong on the inside. So a patient would come in, say on a trolley, uh, for example, one leg shorter than the, the other, an outward rotation. I know automatically those orthopods among us, if there are any, you would automatically be thinking, well, there's a fractured neck of femur, someone's broken their hip. But then you would not be able to tell that unless you took that necessary step for the clearer, firmer diagnosis of sending a patient away for an x-ray, where you not only look externally, but through the x-ray, you look internally. And I think that's, in a sense, what James is doing for the churches here in chapter 4, even in the realms of relationship. Because if we look down even at verse 1, here James is showing us essentially what is happening externally in the church, just in those first few words there, asking about fights and quarrels. And it's as if even in that, James is almost seeing that we are symptomatic of something, so he takes a photograph. What does that photograph show us? Well, the photograph shows us that you fight and quarrel. You fight and quarrel. Do you fight, brothers and sisters, friends? Do you quarrel? Have you, do you fight with your spouse, with your parents, children, even brothers and sisters in the church? To some extent, I'm sure you do. Because the heart of the matter is that 
none of us need to look very far to see where there is conflict in life, in our own lives, do we? None of us can say, oh, my life is marked with perfect peace. It's true to say that our lives are commonly marked by pain related to conflict. Family life can be that way for, for many of us. I mean, what happens when two sinners say, I do? It's something of the reality of marriage, isn't it? You, you put two people who are sinners and who have a tendency towards selfishness in the same house and, and really just watch them go. I mean, there's plenty of love, of course. And there's happiness, commonly. But at times, well, there is the potential to go to all-out war. And all the married people said. <laughs> Even over toilet seats and toothbrush, you know, toothbrushes. I mean, little things like that. This is not from personal experience, I want to add. But even in church life, even in church life, many of you know, so sad, the kind of church life where the greatest battle we face is not how will we win the world for Christ, but how will we stop devouring each other? It's draining. It's awful. I've seen churches grind to a halt because of fighting and quarreling that has its root in selfishness. And this is the big question that James throws up for us. Why is this happening? What is the problem? And this is where James, having taken the photograph and shown us the fighting and the quarreling, takes an x-ray to give us a closer look, to uncover the root problem. The reason for our fighting is in 1B and following. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your your desires that battle within you. You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? James, are you actually saying to us that when I fight and quarrel, the problem is not in the person that I am fighting with, but in me? That the fracturing of relationships in my household or in the church are down to my heart? Wow. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Look how many times, even in verses 1 to 3, he highlights the problem of personal desire using one or two synonyms here. Verse 2, you want something but you don't get it. The second half of verse 2, you covet but you cannot have what you want. Verse 3 then refers to our personal motives and pleasures. James is being crystal clear. Our outward conflict is symptomatic of how deep and how abiding our struggle with passionate self-centeredness actually is. And it's a struggle that leads always and only to fractures, broken relationships, broken lives, broken witness of a church. We vie for control in all of our relationships. And when we cannot have what we want, what do we tend to do? Well, we act like children. Really, we throw some kind of tantrum. We feel like we've been robbed of something, denied of something that we deserved or should have received. And we don't like that at all. And here's where we see the reality of just how these 
inner desires can have such a, 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 a changing effect on the way we look at people. I mean, our desires and our wants can easily alter the way we look at things and the way we look at each other. And I know for a fact, personally speaking, in my most sinful moments, I can look in a person not as someone whom I should serve, but as someone who could potentially serve me. And I hate seeing that in myself. I can look at a person as a vehicle for getting what I want or as an obstacle in the way of getting what I want. And the end result of not getting what I want is that I'm strongly tempted to fight, strongly tempted to go to war, strongly tempted to even hate. And Jesus tells me hate is equivalent to murder. You kill and you covet, James says. See how they're tied together? Wow. Maybe like me, you're saying, what a wretched person I am. But it gets worse. I mean, James tells us in verse 3, our self-centeredness extends even to our praying. You think, what? Even when I talk to God, I am selfish? That's exactly what James is saying here. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This is painful, isn't it? This is painful. This is a painful diagnosis. My goodness. We're calling for analgesics over here. We are needing some pain relief. Because even what we're seeing here is your prayers often reveal the pattern of imbalance and, and self-centeredness. One of the, I, I mean, I, think about your prayers. Out of the many possible things that you could ask for when you come before the Lord in prayer, what do you actually ask for? It's worth sitting down and thinking about it sometimes. What do you concentrate on? Because fundamentally, prayer is about desire. We ask for what we want. But the question is, do our prayers reflect a desire that is aligned with God's desire for our lives? Hence the reason why we should always pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or do your prayers reflect your own personal desires. I want this, and I want that. Well, this text tells us plainly that our prayers go unanswered because of the hindrance interposed by our passionate, selfish desire for whatever we want. And God does not allow us to practice an undisciplined asking. And notice, of course, that James does not say that God does not hear. He says we do not receive. Why? Because when we come before God in prayer at times, we come before him, we don't really want him to be a father, do we? No, with the way we come before God in prayer sometimes, we would, we would like to think of him more as a vending machine. And when he doesn't give us what we want, we are even prone in our relationship with God to do with him that which we do with a faulty vending machine. What do you do when it doesn't give you what you want? You vent your anger in some form. Come on, you've all hit the vending machines, haven't you? You know, and I'm not saying you throw anything at God, but I'm saying that in your heart, you're not happy with him. Why? 
what does this reveal about our condition as humans? And this is us just zeroing in on one tiny little aspect of our life. It basically says that our wants, our selfish desires can actually turn even our most spiritual endeavors like prayer into sin. I mean, this is painful stuff. What is the diagnosis, Dr. James? Tell it to us straight. Well, essentially what he says here in verses 4 and 5, two things. You are adulteresses and functional enemies of God. Okay, we asked you to tell it to us straight. You've told it to us straight. What does he mean when he says you adulterous people? He means that we seek from the world the pleasure that we should seek in God. And what ends up happening when we do that is that we end up being unfaithful to the covenant that exists between us and God. What's worse? This is why he uses the word adulterous in here. What's worse? When we go to our heavenly husband and pray for the resources to live out our lives and our selfish desires, it's essentially like a very wicked wife asking her husband for money so that she can go away on a weekend away with her lover. It's disgraceful. It's, it's terrible. So when we fight, when we quarrel, we understand this. Even when we pray and our selfish desires are taking over, our first problem is not in that we don't get what we want. It's not in the person with whom we fight, sorry. Not in the fact that we don't love each other enough, but primarily the first problem that we face here is that we don't love God enough. And our desires are not aligned with God's desires enough. And verse 4b tells us that we become functional enemies of God. The ESV here says that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. It uses the word enmity, which I feel better reflects the original Greek. Such a strong word. Because it speaks to that biblical theme of the surrendering of relationships, the undoing of covenants, and returning to a former way of life. Isn't that exactly what Paul's been walking us through in Zechariah? With the call of God to the people, then repent. Turn to me. Turn away from your worldly evil practices. Turn to me. You're getting too comfy where you're at. Turn to me. The reason I add the word functionally in there is to say that we may be his children, God's children, but functionally speaking, when we are seeking our own selfish desires, we might as well be his enemies because that's the way we're behaving. Anytime we choose to side with the world, essentially we stand as enemies of the purpose of God. And these things are so despicable because the truth is he desires us. He desires us. It's interesting, isn't it? As we look at how this passage unfolds before us rather than God turning around and saying to us at this point, how dare you? How dare you behave in such a selfish and prideful way? No, he turns, James turns our hearts to the eternal. 
and the faithful love of God. As if to say, you know who you are. But you don't act like it. You are the people who, by the glory of grace, are chosen to be the objects of God's eternal love. And here's what we see about God's eternal love. It is truly and always rightfully jealous. God has a jealous love for us. Do you think verse 5 scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? He has a ceaseless longing for our desire, for our welfare, a ceaseless desire for our love in response, a desire for us to align our wants, our passions with his heart. He loves us with a love so faithful, so complete, that there is no way that he could actually tolerate us in our fickle, unfaithful, selfish, wandering passions. And he has made his commitment clear to us by giving us the gift of his spirit and the will of his spirit. It's not compatible with those sinful passions. So he's saying to us here essentially, in, in these first, this first point, James, James's diagnostic test is that our warring passions make us enemies of God. In other words, we're in trouble. Okay, we're in trouble. But listen, here is the best news that we could hear today. The second thing that we see from verse six: you're not left in your sin, and you are not left to fight this battle for or by yourself into this abhorrent situation comes verse 6. Look with me. You need to read this for yourself. Verse 6. But he gives us, what's the word? More. What's the next word? Wow. Despite us. Despite us. And this is point two. God's remedial grace. This is the remedy for our ills. The remedy for our deepest, most, our, our deepest brokenness. God gives more grace. God is actively generous towards us, despite us. We often say God's love is unconditional for us, which means he loves you just as you are. But it's better than unconditional because he loves you despite who you are. Should our hearts not be lifted in praise to him just for that? We've been singing about his redeeming love. I fear we don't actually grasp the extent of that redeeming love. He, God, gives us more grace. Despite our adulterousness, despite our banging of the vending machine and the venting of our anger, God gives us more, say it, grace. Please get this this morning. How comforting is that? That God is tirelessly on our side. He is the very source of grace and is wondrously active and generous in giving us that grace. And he is determined to give us more grace to meet our unending need for grace. It's incredible. It's amazing grace, truly. And how we need to remember these things. That if our problems like, like our selfishness and our pridefulness gives us grief, God gives us more grace. 
how is this possible? How is this possible not only within the realm of our pridefulness, but within the realm of every other sin that we will commit? Well, in Jesus Christ and in him alone, we are secure in this, aren't we? His redeeming love is what we've been singing about. We have one who has faced the seductive temptations of the world. Who knows how deep our struggles are with sin and how prone we are to fall. But he is the one who has made atonement for our sins, dying on the cross as the bearer of our sins. And by his victory over sin and death extends to us this unending flow of grace. That's how it's possible. Because of his finished work. The finished work of the seated king, Jesus. That's how it's possible. If there is no Christ, we would only have guilt and judgment and condemnation and hell because of our adulterous behavior and selfish desires. There's no question about it. But because Jesus came and because we put our faith and our trust in him, turning from our sin and turning to him in faith, God saves us. And because God sent him in love to die on this cross, the thing is, even when we look at ourselves and think, yep, I'm adulterous, I'm broken, this grace that's offered us through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, invites us to come out of hiding. There's no point hiding. There's no need to hide. You're not going to come out and be faced with someone who's just going to crush you. You're not going to come out and see God standing before you looking over your head, not even willing to look you in the eye, not frowning at you sternly, but arms open in love. And the invitation is to come. We can look away from ourselves. Isn't that a precious thought that when so often we take so much time to look at our own selves and look to our own wants and our own desires and we're so self-focused Honestly, we, we get cross-eyed ourselves. But this, this grace enables us to look away from ourselves, to trust in Christ as our only hope. And you know, this grace is so amazing. Even for those of us who've been believers for a long time, see, and we keep tripping up and we keep falling. Well, this this text tells us that even when we've had so much grace from him to the extent that we would say, Lord, I have had more than enough grace from you, he would say to us today, well, you can have more. Because my love for you is infinite beyond measure, as is my grace, and you can just keep on receiving because you trust in me. He gives more grace. That's the answer. That's the remedy. So here's the question. What must we do this morning? In light of that, oh, I'm thinking now even of the song, Oh to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind this wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Now take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In there, in that verse, 
from that song, I think we see what we're supposed to do. We're not called to morbid introspection. We're not called to burrow into ourselves and never move on from wallowing in guilt or shame. This text does not allow that. So do not dare go out of this place today wallowing in guilt or shame. You are not allowed. This text does not allow you to do that. That mindset is devoid of grace and works against the grace that God offers us. Instead, we're called to come out of hiding and say, yes, Lord, James 4 describes me. Lord, sometimes I love your kingdom. I find great joy in being a part of what you're doing here on earth. But so often I'm just so self-focused. In the comfort of your grace, though, I come, I run to you and not from you. That's what we're to do. It's a picture of repentance. This is point three, our necessary response. Where God says to us, here is my grace to receive. But with that still says to us, motivated by the reception of that grace, here are my commands to obey. Repent. Take time to examine yourself. See the condition of your heart, your brokenness, and repent. What is repentance? Well, we see it here outlined for us really clearly in verses 7 to 10. First of all, submit yourselves to God. Well, what's submission except the acknowledgement of authority? The Greek word here basically means to put yourself under. Put yourself under God, in other words. It's a reminder for us to recognize that, that God is higher than us. We are not to put God under us. We do not rule our own lives. He is the sovereign ruler, the only king over us. So this repentance looks like a, an invitation to self-conscious commitment to God to say, Lord, I am committing to your kingdom. I'm motivated by your grace. I'm not doing this to earn your favor. I'm motivated by your grace. And I ask you for your continued help to deliver me from this kingdom of self. What else does that repentance look like? Look on with me. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need this reminder, don't we? There is an enemy who holds before us constantly the seductive and the temporary pleasures of this world. And this, we are called to resist. The Greek word here is antihistete, from which we get our root antihistamine. Uh, how many medical analogies am I using today? Essentially, we're called to resist the devil, to block him. You know what? take antihistamines to top, stop a major allergic reaction to something well resist in the same way stop this reaction to that temptation put a block in there where we have in our most self exalting moments resisted God and run to the devil we're now essentially to start resisting the devil run to God because this is what else we see this is part and parcel of repentance Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Isn't this exactly what we've been thinking about in Zechariah as well? Zechariah 1.3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And that the call to recognize that by failing to resist the devil, you've been running from me. 
but by resisting him and running to me, you're, you're getting your life in the right order. Again, motivated by that grace. God drawing near to us. Such a needy people, isn't it? Such a great picture for us. That God welcomes those who come with godly sorrow over sin. Second half of verse 8 there tells us that we need to cleanse and purify hands and hearts. We need a thorough purification. In other words, our problem, of course, is that we're double-minded. Literally in Greek, Greek, two psyches, two minds. And for our two-faced inconsistency with God, we draw near, we seek his cleansing. And notice the order of that as well. We convince ourselves so often that we need to clean our act up before we draw near to God. But in this order, he makes it really clear, draw near. And with the divine enablement of his spirit and the motivation of grace to live different lives, not stained by sin, but marked by holiness, then that's the way to do it. And then we're called to mourn, really. Grieve, mourn, and wail, verse 9. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to grim. The laughter is a reference to the gratification that we have when we run headlong, consciously, willfully into our sin with enjoyment. We think it satisfies. But change that is the call here. Grieve more than wail. I always get images of Middle Eastern funerals here. It's chest beating, wail, crying, devastation. It's a, a response appropriate to the diagnosis, really. And James says that this is the appropriate response to these sinful events in our lives. I don't think we get that mournful of our sin, do you? I know I don't. I think I think there is a tendency in me, perhaps in you, to be too casual over it. That we can be too comfortable in our sin and too comfortable to the extent that we end up just looking like the world and not being a distinctive people of God at all. And maybe we just we have lost a sense of the ugliness of sin and the damage and the disloyalty that is inherent in sin. I hope that this text has done something to address that because it's frightening the fact that we can look face to face with sin and really not be moved by it. Isn't that incredible? How often does God do this when we read the Bible together like this? You know, it's it's as if we come to a text, we recognize our issue. He's given us a photograph of ourselves. I mean, imagine he took a photograph of you. Imagine he took a photograph of you in your house when things are a little tense or in the way you're disciplining your children or in the way children are addressing their parents or in church meetings and whatever kind of meeting in church or even just downstairs in the lounge having a discussion. And then he shows you the x-ray. Shows you the brokenness inside to say that it's not to do with the other person. It's actually to do with what's going on in your own heart. How incredible it is that God turns the light on in our dark rooms, isn't it? It's great when he does that. and doesn't leave you in despair thinking, Look at me! I am broken and I'm in trouble. But no, he says, I give you more grace. There's good reason for it. There's good reason for this humble call to repentance in light of that grace. The answer to our deepest problem is in, indeed, in verse 10, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Remembering what it also says in verse 6, God opposes the pride but gives grace to the humble. Do you think you deserve lifting up today, friends? No. But he lifts you up. When you come humbly repenting under God's welcoming grace. Humbly repenting under God's welcoming grace. There is no reason for anyone to go out of here today despairing at their sin in this area. Because the promise of grace is there. It, stand, it stood for them who received the letter back then. It stands for us today who consider it today. It's incredible that he gives grace to lift us up. Your marriage needs for you to humble yourself and repent under God's welcoming grace. Your kids need for you to humble yourself and repent under God's welcoming grace. Your church needs for you to come humble yourself and repent under his welcoming grace. And to do it tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. Such is the efficacy and the sufficiency of his blood shed on a cross all those years ago to give you life today and life in him. Let's pray together.